0: Did you say seven years bad luck? So, (laughs) do you know why the people say breaking a mirror is seven years bad luck? By the way, it's an old superstition that goes back to people thinking that the mirror somehow contains your soul. And if you break it, then you lose part of that in the image of the mirror. But so we, I, I wanted to break this mirror for you this morning and And kind of launch off of that with the idea that we are not superstitious, right? So we're not worried about seven years of bad luck. But but I do want to say that we are going to launch into seven weeks of bad news, okay? (laughs) We're going to spend the next seven weeks and we're going to talk about a subject that is not our favorite subject, okay? We're going to talk about sin and guilt before God. uh, But don't worry, because at the end of the seven weeks, we're going to launch into a really long, uh, many more weeks of really good news that are so good that you'll not worry about the bad news anymore. Really, it's it's just going to be that way. But we're going through this, and so symbolically, then this mirror um, is going to kind of portray for us the idea that we, as human beings, we're broken. We are broken. And just like it would be impossible for you to gather up the pieces of this shattered mirror and put them back and and try and glue them back into place, the the image that you got from that, if you did the very best job you could, would never really be the right image. What you need is for this mirror to be restored. What you need really is a new mirror, is what you need. And, And that's really God's story for us. God's story for us is that we as human beings are broken, and irreparably broken. And, and what we don't need is just some self-help to try and put the pieces back together. What we need is to be totally restored. What we need is to be made new. And, and what we're doing starting today is we're launching into the first major section of the book of Romans, starting in chapter number 1 and verse number 18. If you have your Bibles, please open to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to continue through Romans chapter 3, and verse number 20. And like I said, the theme coming through these verses in these almost three full chapters um, is man's sin, man's guilt. And you know what? It's not our favorite subject. It's not. But you need to understand that it is vitally important to your proper understanding, first and foremost, of God himself and how we can then relate to God or how God relates to us. But it's also vitally important to your proper understanding understanding and presentation of the gospel to other people, and and we'll see that even as weeks continue, but but I put in your notes this statement that if man doesn't understand that he's lost, then he'll never understand his need for a Savior, And, and part of the problem in presenting the gospel today is that people jump right to the part about how much God loves us, and He does, and how Christ died for us, and He certainly did but people don't truly surrender their whole heart and life to it because they don't first truly understand just how desperately lost we are without Jesus Christ. And of all the places in the Scripture that most appropriately defines our lives as modern man in these last days in the 21st century, it's probably the letter that Christ writes to the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. And that very description really defines kind of where we're at. In Revelation 3 and verse 17, it says this, Because thou sayest, Christ is then saying this to the church of the Laodiceans, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that you have an entirely different spiritual condition, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so that's what we see among people today. We find people today who don't recognize that they're broken. They don't recognize their need. And if you don't recognize your need, if you say that I'm fine, I'm good, I got a good job, I got a good home, I got good friends, life is good, I don't really need anything, well, included in that statement for many people, I don't even need God. And that's a real problem. That's a real problem. Because if a man is going to ask God to save him, he's got to know what he needs to be saved from. Amen? You need to know what you... Are going to be saved from. And so Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 really are written as the final word on this subject. What we have in these chapters is the definitive text of Scripture that puts an end to all discussion about this issue of man's guilt before God. It starts out in verse number 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I mean, we're jumping right in with the wrath of God. And you know, God's wrath, that's, that's his punishment, okay? That's his judgment. God's wrath, that, that's his, his anger. And, and it's built up and ultimately poured out on men. And so, what we're going to see today, and literally the title I've given this message, is Why God Must Judge Men. It, you must understand why God must judge man he can't just turn a blind eye he can't just just wink at it and say "Uh, it's all good it's all right you're trying it's good enough no the theme of the book of Romans as we've seen now for a couple of weeks is God's righteousness okay and that story really begins to unfold right here as we point out man's lack of righteousness and once we clearly establish That fact, then we can ultimately understand God's righteousness, and it becomes very clear. In fact, God's righteousness, once we understand how broken we are, becomes overwhelming, really. And it helps us in the long run to really have a a fruitful relationship with Him. You need to understand that because God is righteous and we are not, He must judge sin. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, let's read the entire passage, starting in verse 18. I began reading it. We'll start in verse 18 and go through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen "...being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man." and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Let's take a minute, just pray, let it soak in, and we'll take a look at what God has to say. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is, through your Holy Spirit, teach us your truth. We are gathered here this morning. I'm thankful for each and every one that has taken the time this morning to get out of their homes, to drive through the weather, to come here to church and to learn something. Lord, you have brought us here on purpose. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the time of refreshing in worship. I know you are in our midst. I know you desire to communicate. This word is powerful. Please, God, speak to us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's two main things we're going to look at, and the very first thing is very simple. Again, we're going to take the first three verses, 18, 19, and 20, and we're going to look at the first subject, and that is this. It's the general revelation. There's a general revelation that God gives, and we're going to see that as we walk through this. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, goes on and says, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. I want you to get that phrase, who hold the truth. There's a reason why in this church we read the old King James Version of the Bible. If you happen to be reading a different version, that's fine. You're very welcome to be here. But we choose to read this version of the Bible because we really believe it is the most accurate. And the word hold the truth, you'll find, will appear only in a King James Bible. If you're reading any other version of the Bible in English, you probably have a word that is something like suppress the truth or some form thereof. And what I would say to you is that the word suppressed does not communicate the same thing as the word to hold. And the idea is this, because what man is not doing, God is trying to tell us, what man is not doing is trying to push the truth down and to keep it away. Man has the truth. He holds it. He actually has it, and only this English Bible will make that clear to you. Now, I don't say that as a Bible version argument, but just to point out a point that God is trying to make known. We already have the truth. We hold the truth. The problem is we hold it in unrighteousness. We hold it in unrighteousness. And that's an important thing. You might respond and think, well, I don't know about that. I mean, not everybody has the truth. I mean, there's a lot of pagan people all over the world who have never heard. They don't really know. And and that's kind of why we do missions, right? We talk about missions all the time. And I would say, Well, yeah, sort of. Um, You might say, well, wait a minute. If God's wrath is poured out on men who hold the truth, then it's only the people who have already received it that the wrath is actually going to be poured out on, right? And I would say, yes. However, let's continue down the text because what we'll find is, is that every man holds the truth. There's not some who could actually claim innocence that they don't. Verse 18, if you'll notice, doesn't end with a period. It ends with a semicolon. The sentence continues in verse 19 with the word because. Because that which may be known of God, notice, is manifest in them. For God himself has showed it unto them. It's God's job to reveal his truth to man. It's not our job. I am not absolving you of responsibility to talk about the Lord. That's an entirely different issue. But God himself absolutely controls the fact that there will be a general revelation of his very presence made manifest to every breathing human being ever. And that's literally what we're going to see. In fact, if you were to look in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, Chapter 1 and verse number 9, the very same thought is, is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and his first coming to this earth. It says, That was the true light, capital L, Jesus Christ is the subject. That was the true light, notice, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. No exceptions. None. Every single human being that has ever breathed free air has been enlightened to some level, that there is a God. Regardless of where you were born, regardless of your religious background, regardless of your geography, regardless of your socioeconomic level, regardless of any of those things, it is ultimately God's job to make sure that that light gets to every man. So you may say, okay, how does he do that? (laughs) That'd be a great question. He obviously goes on and explains exactly how he does that. Verse number 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Before we kind of jump into this verse, and this is an awesome verse of scripture, we're going to have some fun, okay? I want you to understand something. Before we get into any of this, what God is trying to communicate to us through verse number 20 concludes with the statement, so they are without excuse it concludes with a statement, Wh- whatever it is that God is doing to reveal himself is enough to prove that we are guilty. We are without excuse before God. There is no man that has ever lived or will ever live that could rightly stand before a holy, righteous God and say, I don't even know about you. You can't judge. I don't even know the truth. I don't even know anything about it. Nobody, ever, Without excuse. Okay, so what is that all about? Well, if you were to study theology, okay, and you took more time and got into a theological course of study and and got into some stuff, you would find that in the area of revelation, okay, what you would would find is there are two categories of revelation. Okay, one is general revelation, and the other is specific revelation. Sometimes specific revelation is referred to as special revelation. And, and, And the way we define them is this. God generally reveals himself through nature. And that's what we're going to look at today. God generally reveals his existence through nature. Uh, When we get to chapter number two, there is another element of God's general revelation, and it's the the conscience that is inside of man. Okay, we'll save that for chapter two. But God generally reveals his existence to everybody who's ever lived and breathed through nature, and that's what we'll see today. God specifically reveals reveals himself through his word. He specifically reveals the details of his plan and everything that you need to know for eternity in this book right here. And so that's the general revelation versus the specific or the special revelation. So the general revelation of God is what we see talked about in verse number 20. It is that the invisible things of him, spiritual things, things that are not physically visible, are clearly seen. Well, if you're just reading the Bible, that ought to get your attention. That sounds like an apparent contradiction. Invisible things, clearly seen. How's that possible? Well, we're talking about seeing the spiritual, seeing things that our physical eyes can't see. How is that done? It says being understood by the things that are made. So there's going to be a level of understanding, and the level of understanding is going to come through God's physical creation, through nature. The the very creation of God, it is the work of His fingers. The very creation of God is going to communicate to us an understanding that we then are going to be able to make the parallels to spiritual truth, and we'll see that. Even His eternal power and Godhead. And we'll look at that before we're done, too. So let's start with this. Creation declares God's existence. I mean, nature itself screams it out. God created everything, and it's created to manifest His very presence. Psalm chapter 19, first five verses. Have you ever noticed this? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Do do you see, God is, look at the words, declare, speech, language, Voice, words, he's hammering that thing. He's absolutely screaming out. God is trying to communicate with us. And he is communicating with us through his very creation. The heavens, the firmament, the days, the nights. And literally, as we're going to see in some detail, the very essence of everything God has created is a manifestation of his person. It's a manifestation of who he is. If you have, let me tell you something, if you have never seen this before, you're going, to be, you're going to leave here today thinking, I'm glad I came to church today. If you have seen this before, and it's just a reminder for you, you're going to be encouraged and reminded of just how great our God is, and how he put everything together, and how you truly can learn awesome truths about who he is, just by paying attention to life. Not even counting Bible study. There's awesome truths in there, but we're in the general revelation. That's what we're talking about today, okay? So, for example, this is actually a true story. Two astronauts go out into outer space. They're in a space capsule. I should have read this. It's a, good, it's a true story. One of, one of them was a believer, one of them wasn't. And the guy who was an atheist, they're in the space capsule, and they look out the little portal, and, and they can see just the, the, the firmament and the heavens and the stars and the planets and just the amazing view that they would get. And one astronaut turns to the other and he says, I can see everything from up here and I don't see God. And the other guy said, really? I see him everywhere. And, and it's the, that's the mindset. It's the mindset God has got his imprint everywhere. So let's look at a few of those things. Let's talk about the sun. The sun. The sun is the big burning star in the sky. It gives us light, right? And the sun itself is a picture of God himself in a lot of different ways. Uh, We looked at Psalm 19. If we went to verse number five, it says, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Jesus Christ is ultimately referred to as a bridegroom, Rejoices as a strong man to run a race. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 2, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and His second coming in glory to establish His kingdom, it says the Son of Righteousness, and it's written S-U-N, not S-O-N, the Son, S-U-N of Righteousness, will arise with healing in His wings. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the Son will rise. That's like the dawn of the day. Well, in the Bible, the day is the day of the Lord. And we've studied that here in some detail. The day of the Lord will be a 1,000-year-long day because the day with the Lord is 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is as a day. And when Jesus Christ returns to this planet, it will be the dawn of a new day, the day of the Lord. And the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, will arise with healing in His wings. The sun is compared to God Himself. And even if you just looked at the physical makeup, The sun gives off three kinds of rays. There are light rays that go out. There are heat rays that go out. And there are what are called actinic, or you could say x-rays, the strongest, most powerful. And they represent the three persons of the Trinity. Because the light is the thing that allows us to see things physically, and Jesus Christ is the visible form. He is the bodily form, of what otherwise would be a spirit, an invisible God. The heat is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you that you have never seen physically, but you can feel his presence, like you can feel the warmth of the heat of the sun. And God the Father is pictured by those actinic rays that you can neither feel, neither can you see, but they're the most powerful of all. And we look at the pictures of the sunrise and the sunset, and when the sun sets in the west... If it's a clear day, the the, the color is blood red. And that's a picture of Christ dying on the cross for you and shedding his blood so that you could have eternal life. It says in Psalm 19 and verse 2, we looked at it, doesn't it say, day unto day utters speech? Night unto night. So every day, every night, every day, every night, every day, every night, he's trying to communicate something to you. It sets in the west. Blood red. It rises the next morning in the east. Again, blood red. You go to Isaiah chapter 63, and it talks about how when Jesus Christ comes again, he'll have his garments dipped in blood. He comes from Basra, and, and, that's, and, and it's a picture of his second coming. It's a picture of his second coming where his garments, where he comes in Armageddon, and he slaughters the unbelievers, and, and the blood is up to the horse's bridles, and, and it's a picture we get from Revelation. And when the sun rises, the sun of righteousness arises with healing of his wings. That's the dawn of the new day. That's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 says this, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn, that's that millennial day, and the day star arise in your hearts. The day star that's the sun, S-U-N, the burning star in the sky that brings us the day. The day star, that's Jesus Christ. When the day star arises in your heart, that's the rapture of the church. <laughs> that's the church rising. That's us being called out. That's what he's trying to communicate to us. That's how we put it together. It's a picture. It's, it's the firmament declaring God's glory. It's the heavens. Let's talk about the moon. If the sun is a picture of God, the moon is a picture of the church. Because the moon is an interesting thing. The moon moves on a course with relation, with the the point of reference being on earth. The direction of the movement of the moon follows the direction of the movement of the sun. The direction of the movement of the moon follows the direction of the movement of the sun. In other words, the church follows the Lord. And moves in opposition to the movement of this planet. In other words, the church following the Lord will naturally therefore move in direction in opposition to the rotation or the movement of this world and this world system. The moon in of itself has no life. It's a dead planet. The moon is called, it, it is the night light. It is the light that shines at the nighttime. The Bible refers to the time of the church when Jesus Christ is not on this earth as a time of night, spiritually. Jesus Christ said back in John chapter one, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Physically, he is not here anymore. We are here and we are the lesser light. We are the moon. What does the moon do? The moon has no light of its own. It merely reflects the light of the of the sun. You know what your life is supposed to be? You're supposed to be like the moon. You don't have any light of your own to shed to anybody, and if you did, it wouldn't be worth anything. It would be a black light. I don't know. But our our job is to reflect the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in this dark and dying world. You ever... You ever see that big, you know, shine, shine on, harvest moon? You get that big old full moon in the sky on a clear night, and it's beautiful. It looks awesome. It's defined. It looks cool. It's beautiful from a distance. Then you get out one of them powerful telescopes, and you focus in on the moon really close, and when you get a really close-up view of it, it's not so beautiful anymore, is it? I mean, it's full of dirt and dust and craters and pockmarks and all this stuff, and it's just kind of nasty up close kind of like the church from a distance christian you know we look pretty good man i mean especially if we're if we're reflecting some of the light of the lord jesus christ i mean we look okay but you get close up to some of our lives all of our lives by the way and what you're going to find is scars and wounds and, and problems and hurts and things that have gone in every one of our lives and all god's trying to do is just teach us a lesson that's all he's just trying to talk to us man he's just communicating He's just communicating. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20. That's a million dollar verse. That's a verse you ought to highlight. That's a verse you ought to memorize. That's a verse you ought to know. Romans 1.20 gives us literally the prescription to be able to see God in all of creation. You have a problem with your vision. You go to the eye doctor. He checks you out. He gives you glasses. and You get a certain prescription so you can see right. Sometimes I think we need to go and get our spiritual eyes checked we need to be able to see the things God's trying to show us we can see invisible things you can see spiritual things and you do that by understanding better you get a better understanding of what God's trying to communicate to us and whatever it is it's going to have something to do with the Godhead so let's talk about the Godhead what is this thing the Godhead If you're new to church and you haven't spent a lot of time in the Bible, that phrase may sound a little funny to you, the Godhead. You know, I don't know what comes to your mind, you know, like just some big floating head. I don't know. (laughs) But the word Godhead literally means the Trinity, the Trinity. Now, you know, if you're in any churchy circle at all, you've heard the word Trinity, right? But interestingly, you may not know that the word Trinity never appears in your Bible. It's not in there at all. It's not wrong that we talk about it. It communicates the same principle that Godhead communicates. The idea is, is that God is a triune being. There are three distinct persons that make up one unique God. The Bible word is not Trinity. The Bible word is Godhead. That's the Bible word. And you would not be surprised to find out. How many times do you suppose the word Godhead appears in your Bible? Three times. So it appears right here in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20, and in the other two places I have in your notes for you, okay? It appears in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29. In Acts chapter 17, just for some context, it's the story of the Apostle Paul when he's visiting Athens. And if you will remember, Athens is just a a hotbed of pagan religion. And they worshipped multitudes of gods and they had statues and idols set up on every corner and they were so worried that they would forget to worship the right God that they had a statue and they just had the title on there to the unknown God. There's probably another one we're forgetting. We'll build a statue to you too. And Paul gets up there and he preaches Jesus okay, to clarify to them who the one and only real God really is. And in verse 29 of Acts 17, Paul says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. There is a real God, and he is spiritual. He is not graven. He is not this statue that you have formed. He is the real God, and he is three in one. The other place that we find it in the Scripture is in the book of Colossians, in chapter number 2 and verse number 9. Again, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, For in Him dwelleth, notice, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, if we look at those three forms of rays that come out of the sun, the light rays like the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the bodily form of God. God never appears to anybody physically Except in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only physical manifestation God has ever or will ever have. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If God is ever going to have a visible form, it's Jesus. He is the bodily form of the entire Trinity. All the fullness of all the Godhead, bodily, is Jesus Christ. That's the definition of what Godhead is He's a Trinity. He's three in one. Sometimes that's hard to understand. Sometimes that's hard to explain. But we accept it. That's what he says, that's how he reveals himself. So, God is the creator, he's the author of life. When he began to create, he created everything out of nothing. I'm just saying that again. That's worth saying again. He created everything out of nothing. And when he did that, I obviously don't know how he did it. I wasn't there. But I think of this. Maybe I'm weird. How did you decide to do that? When God decided to create, I imagine, I don't know if it's this way, he looked around and said, what am I going to use for a pattern? Oh, it's only me. (laughs) I'm the only one here. That's how my mind works. So I'll just, create, I'll just create everything after the pattern of me. How about that? And you say, that sounds funny. Okay, let it sound funny. But let's look together at the imprint of the Godhead in the universe. Because the Godhead literally has its mark in everything that has to do with life. I'm going to run through a list for you. You'll, you'll never get them all if you're trying to write them down. Let me say this. What, here's what I'll do this week. I'll go ahead and I'll post them on my blog. If you want to get them, I'll put them up there for you. People who are in our ministry tools and training classes, and we have a course on how to study the Bible, we go through this in a lot more detail. But let me just give you a list, okay? God created man. Man is a body, a soul, and a spirit. We're all three. Those are three specific parts of a man, but all together make one man. Let's just break down some areas of life. Some may be more obvious. Some maybe you'll think about a little bit. What's a family? Well, a family is a man, a woman, and a child. You say, we don't have children. We're still a family. Okay, you can call it what you want, but really you're a couple. You're a family when you have kids. All personal problems, psychologically speaking, you know, when we deal with personal problems, they're either mental, emotional, or physical. Those are the problems we have. All of reality is broken down into three. It's either space, matter, or time. That's all there is. There's only space, matter, and time. There isn't a fourth one. If we break each of those down, you take space, and space has how many dimensions? It has three. It has length, it has width, and it has depth. Right? Uh, This this pulpit, this, this piece of wood right here, it has length, it has width, and it has a thickness, it has a depth. It has to be three. It can't possibly be two, and it couldn't possibly be four. If you took away any one of the three dimensions of this piece of wood, the piece of wood would cease to exist. Do you understand that? If it only had length and width and absolutely exactly zero depth, guess what? Poof, it vanishes. It's gone. It's gone. Because it's three It's always three. It's never two, and it's never four. Space is three. Matter, all physical matter, it's either a liquid, a gas, or a solid. And any piece of physical matter can take any one of those states depending on the situation. Time is three. It's past, it's present, it's future. It's impossible to have a past and a future without a present, or a future and a present without a past. It's impossible. It's always three. Atoms, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Electricity, positive, negative, neutral. All the kingdoms that we understand in this world are either animal, vegetable, or mineral. That's all there is. Animal, vegetable, and mineral. Location on the earth, you're either in the land, in the air, or in the sea. You're in astronomy, you've got the sun and the moon and the stars. Somebody asks you a question, it's either yes, no, or Maybe. You get out in the atmosphere, there's ionosphere, stratosphere, and exosphere. You play music, there's melody, there's rhythm, and there's harmony. Any particular musical note is going to have volume, it's going to have pitch, and it's going to have duration. It's got to have all three. There's only three core races of men. They come after the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you're either white, you're black, or you're oriental. You can get into the Bible and see God's hand in the Bible all through it. There's only three categories of Bible writers. You're either the fathers, the prophets, or the apostles. The Old Testament has the law, the prophets, and the writings. The New Testament has the Gospels, the Acts, and the epistles. I mean, we could go on all day long. You go home and make your own list. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. That's how God made everything. It's evident. It's evident. And let me just tell you something. The only way that you'd ever miss it is to get an education. The only way you'd ever miss it is to get too smart for God and get an education. His general revelation of himself in all his creation, gets out there. You grew up in a rural area. You're a farmer. You grew up in a village in a remote area of this world where you interact with the soil and the elements and you depend on the rain and the sun and the movement of the clouds and the stars. I don't care what tribe of people from what corner of the earth you're from. If you are directly connected to nature on a daily basis, you live in the jungle. I don't care who you are and where you are. You have an absolute crystal clear presentation of who God is. And most of those people there are not atheists. Now, they don't know about Jesus yet because they need the specific revelation to get that. But they are not atheists. You've got to go to school to become an atheist. And so that's our second point today. We saw general revelation. Now we're going to look at the general rejection. Verses 21 through 23. Listen, don't be deceived. Man willfully rejects God Every single day. And there are no innocent men when it comes to their dealing with God. Again, verse 20 ends with, so they are without excuse. They are without excuse. And again, that sentence doesn't end there either. Because it goes on with verse 21 that it also begins with, because. Why are they without excuse? Because. That when they knew God, which by the way, every man knows God in the sense that they know he exists. And that's the context. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So we're going to look at three things that categorize and characterize man's willful rejection, our general rejection of God as a, as a race of people. And the first one is no glory. It says, they glorified him not as God. Now, to glorify, if you're not familiar, maybe that sounds, again, maybe that's kind of a churchy word and and maybe that's sort of new to you, but to glorify something or someone is literally just to to honor them, to praise them, to brag on them, okay? And I thought about how I could describe this for you and I could read a lot of Bible verses to you and I decided I'll just tell you a story. Maybe that'll help. This is a true story. So, in, in my personal life, I was saved when I was 21 years old as a college student in Arkansas, and I had just moved. I had dropped out of school for some years, and I, I lived in the suburbs of Chicago, and and I moved to Arkansas to go to school. And as soon as I moved there to go to school at age 21, somebody shared the gospel with me, and I got saved. So I turned 22 very quickly. My birthday's in September, so that school year I turned 22. And, and started going into that year. And so while I'm 22 years old and I'm learning like crazy about the Lord and I'm excited about his thing in my life, at this time, my father was ill and, and he ended up passing away right about that time when that school year started. My mother was alone and, and they had retired to Arkansas. I'm not gonna give you a lot of detail. I'm just trying to give you some background. The point is this. My life in Christ changed radically. Before Christ, I was an average suburban teenager in the 70s without Christ who did things that average suburban christ teenagers do. Not good things. And I had n- no problem accepting the fact that I was a sinner because I did it all the time and I was pretty good at it. But when I got saved, God changed me. And and he really changed my heart and my soul, and and things began to change visibly in my life. And I enrolled back in school, and I started getting good grades. And my mother is not here today, but I think she would remember to tell you that I really, I began treating her very good, better than I ever had for years. I began to help her out and go home on weekends. I, I did a lot of things just being a conscientious, good citizen that I never, ever, ever used to do growing up. I had a terrible temper, and that began to really calm down. I had a terrible vocabulary, and that cleaned right up. So I'm on the phone one day, and I'm talking to my sister. She's four years older than me. She married young. She's in Chicago raising her family, and she says, Jeff, let me just tell you. We, your family, we we are so glad, really, that you're back in school. We're glad that you've cleaned up your life. We're glad that you're getting good grades. We're glad that you're helping mom out. But really, Jeff, why do you got to talk about Jesus all the time? (laughs) True story. And I told her, her name is Joanne. I said, Joanne, I got to give credit where credit's due. That's all there is to it. I got to give credit where credit's due. That's glorifying the Lord. You give him credit where it is due. But you know what? Most people won't do that. Most people won't do that. They'll see the glory of God in the heavens, in creation. And they will not come back and give Him glory. They will not stop and consider how those things might be. We're in Super Bowl season, okay? It's funny to me, Super Bowl uh, or football fans. You know, people will paint their bodies colors (laughs) of their team and put a cheese wedge on their head (laughs) and go out in freezing weather and scream like fools. But if you show up in church every time the doors are open, and if you actually open your mouth and talk to your friends about their eternal soul and about the Bible and about salvation, you're a fanatic. That's weird. Why is that? No glory. That's how we reject him. The next one, no thanks. It says, neither were they thankful. Hey, y'all. This is a big deal with God. Not being thankful is a big deal with God. Second Timothy chapter 3. There's tons of places in the scripture we could look at this. I chose this one. First two verses. This know also that in the last days, that's now, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And just stop there for a second, because there's a list that goes on through these first five verses. And if we could summarize them in just one statement, that's the statement. Lovers of our own selves, which is manifest by all these other things coming down the list covetous, boasters. Proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. It goes on. It ends in verse number five that says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So perilous times are here, y'all. And what we have so prevalent in our society is this mentality of entitlement. Have you noticed? Everybody feels entitled to something or things that they want, that they lust after. They feel entitled to get it. And what we do is, is we frequently point the fingers at the kids, and we say, oh, you unthankful entitlement children. Let me just say, on on defense of the kids, where do you suppose they got that? I mean, if we're not living that way as adults, where are they getting it, right? But when we come home and whine and cry and complain about our bosses and our jobs and our neighbors and our pastors and our church and our friends and our circumstances, and and they're not doing me right, and they're not doing me right, and if only this, and all we're crying about what we want and should have, and people aren't giving to us, and then we wonder why the kids are that way. I mean, it's just prevalent. It's just everywhere. So, the Bible has a lot to say about being content (laughs) instead of having this entitlement mentality. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have For he hath said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. (laughs) Do you realize that if you have Jesus, he'll take care of all the other stuff? What are you worried about, really? Is the Lord of glory that saved your soul and lives in your heart and has promised eternity, and is he really going to let you starve? Is that the God that you serve? Be content with such things as you have. Yeah, but the other guy, so? There can be a thousand reasons why the other guy has more than you have. Maybe they're lying and cheating and sinning and getting away with it. Maybe they're very righteous and God blessed them. You don't know. And you know what? It's none of your business. It's none of your business. God gave you what he gave you. Can't you just be thankful Do you realize that being unthankful, that's unrighteous. That brings the wrath of God. Just be thankful. Parents, you give something to your kids, and they're like, I wanted the latest version. (laughs) And you're thinking, I was just expecting thank you. (laughs) I mean, I spent 200 bucks on that thing. Just a thank you. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. You got something to eat? You got some clothes to wear? Be content. You got more than that? Give thanks. Give thanks. Do you thank God for the blessings of life that you enjoy? Really? You know, we talk about giving thanks over a meal before we eat it. It's a very minimal thing to do. Do you you really do that? I mean, do you just stop and thank God for the food? Do you realize that God is the one who created the seed that can grow into the plant to produce the fruit, that God is the one who sends the rain and the sunshine in the direct proportion, you who who garden know. You know, God is the one who controls the opportunity for the food to grow. God is the one who gave you a job so that you could have the money to go to the store and buy it. Do you just stop for a second and just thank Him for all the things that He does for you every single day? Don't you realize All right, so I gave the kids a pass. Let's talk to the kids for a second. All right, you guys, serious. Are y'all thankful for your parents that love you, that provide for you, that care for you, that do for you, that serve you? And I realize not every young person has a wonderful home. And and maybe there's one or two here that, that really, really are struggling. And I'm not trying to make light of any of that. But the vast majority of you church kids, you got good parents, man. They treat you good. Now, let me just say, while I say that, in your heart, you're thinking, yeah, I'm thankful. Do you ever say it? I mean, really, when's the last time you just walked up to your folks and just said, thank you, I know you do a lot for me, and I don't say it enough. Do you know what your parents would do for you (laughs) if you would just say thank you a little more often? (laughs) Now, the, the adults are all laughing, uh, we're going to shift back. <laughs> y'all, do y'all realize what your God would do if he would just say thank you once in a while? Do you realize that the, the heart of a father melts when their child just loves him enough to say thank you? He knows we couldn't pay him back. Just wants us to be thankful. But it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. No thanks is in that category. Thirdly, no sense. No sense. No, how about nonsense? Foolishness. Men that justify themselves. It says they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. I didn't have the time to give this to you in today's Bible study, but if you take the time and want to run some references on the word imagination in the Bible, bad (laughs) the imagination of man's heart is evil continually (laughs) and when you have time to just sit around and let your mind wander and imagine they become vain imaginations you start thinking things you just ought not think the word vain literally just means empty useless worthless worthless having no substance, value, or importance. You can imagine a lot of things. They're just not valuable. They're not important. It goes on in verse number 22, describing these people, and it says, professing themselves to be wise became as fools. So these people profess something. They profess that they're wise. Let's make this real simple. What do you call a person who professes something? A professor. Is God trying to talk to us? How many people have been in college currently or have been? Lots of us. Thank God for the opportunity to have an education. The guys that teach the classes typically are called professors and what you're going to find typically in colleges across this country and this world are people who profess themselves to be wise but in light of the revelation of god have become fools i'm not saying they don't know engineering to teach you engineering they don't know science to teach you science they don't know god They don't know God. And and I have a daughter in college and I have warned her and warned her to be careful because professors do what they do. (laughs) And she just needs to be aware of that and that's okay. But you need to be aware of that. And so what you have is, really, if you just look at society today, modern man truly today worships three things, in my opinion, above all else. Sex, money, money, and education. Education is a God of this world. It just is. And people will malign you for loving Jesus. People will call you ignorant for loving Jesus. And God saw it all coming, and he warned us about it right from the very beginning. You know what the primary religion of most university professors is, don't you? It's evolution. It's evolution. Verse number 23, And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. They changed, or, or might I say exchanged, the glory that's due to God for man and animals. The origin of where we come, the glory that it's due, giving to anything else other than God. Do you notice the list? Man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. It's kind of like reverse evolution, isn't it? It gives rise to humanism. Greek philosopher once said, man is the measure of all things it gives gives rise to all this movement of human rights and civil rights and children's rights and animal rights and everybody has rights except god and there's something messed up about that it's vain it's empty it's worthless the theory of evolution this is deep y'all ready with your pencils it's a theory That means it's not provable. It's a theory. For you hardcore folk, let me say this Creation is also a theory. You can't prove it. Oh, I believe it, by the way. I'm in. I'm in with creation. But you can't prove it. You can't go to a laboratory and reproduce it, you can't prove it scientifically. It's a theory. In my opinion, it requires less faith than evolution. But it's a theory. I think schools ought to be all about education and teach all the theories. That's what I think. Let them teach evolution. Just let me go and teach creation. It'd be all right. My sister was a science teacher in middle school. I asked her if I could do that. She said no. <laughs> the theory of evolution, y'all, whether you realize it or not, worldwide, worldwide has been the excuse, the justification that wicked men have used to kill God. Anybody ever heard of the German philosopher Nietzsche? God is dead and we have killed him. That was kind of his main deal. I used to have a t-shirt that quoted Nietzsche, God is dead, and said Nietzsche. And then right underneath it, it said, Nietzsche is dead, God. (laughs) Well, there you go. wish I still had that. So Charles Darwin writes his famous thesis that we refer to as the origin of the species in 1859, and the real title I put in your notes, because I want you to have it. The full title of that report was called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Did you know that? Did you know that Darwin's study that that that's a racist document but people promote it like it's real like it's actual fact they teach it in schools like it's fact do you know that that's what hitler used to justify exterminating 6000 jews what spiritual force was behind that do you suppose communism fascism all heavily promote Darwin to the exclusion of God and slaughtered people as a result of it. There's a preacher I heard say this. You're either going to go back to the Bible or you're going to go back to the jungle. There's only two choices. So I got a story. I knew this would be a tough day to get everything in, but let me tell you the story. So obviously, I lived in Albania for 14 years, former communist nation, but not just communist. The only communist nation in, in the modern era that, well, communist nation, that was officially declared in their constitution legally to be atheist. God, they, they literally said in so many words, God, you are not welcome here. And they tore down all the churches and the mosques and everything. They didn't allow any religious literature. Your family was heavily persecuted if the word God came out of your lips. Okay, it was, it was the darkest black hole. Of communistic atheism, worse than Russia and Bulgaria and Czechoslovakia and Poland and any of them. Okay? So, when I got to Albania, it's interesting because one of the things I noticed is that the country truly was devoid of lush nature. The mountains were just bare, stuff didn't grow. And I thought, that's weird. And so I took a trip one time back when the, uh, some of you remember in 1999 when we had the, the United Nations bombed Kosovo, and that's our northern neighbor and they're ethnic Albanians, and we made a trip up to Kosovo during that time. And I came to the border crossing at Kosovo. So I'm at the northern part of Albania, and let's just say right here is the border. And, and you know, the, the, typically the way the countries are drawn, it's, it's a mountain, you cross a mountain, this side is this country, that side is that country. So we're crossing this mountain, and I'm standing at the border, and they're doing the passport thing. And I looked, and, and down the line, and there's, listen, there's no fence. There's no big painted yellow line. I mean, it's just, I'm just at the spot where they said, this is ours, that's yours. The Albania side had like nothing green. It had like thorn bushes and rocks. And Here, there was flowers and green stuff. It was pretty. And I'm like, okay, it's the same dirt. (laughs) But these guys said, God, no thank you. And it's really as though God said, okay, (laughs) we'll just kind of shut that faucet down. One of the families that we minister to in Kosovo never did get saved, but nice, nice people. Long story, but they, they tell a story. I was never there, but they tell the story. There is another northern border between Albania and Kosovo in another location where right near the border of Albania on the Kosovo side, there's a village that belongs to Kosovo. And on the Albania side, there's a mirroring village that belongs to Albania. And they could see each other across the way. On the Kosovo side, the village is known to be for that region one of the richest villages of the area. They have a lot of natural resources. Things grow. The people in that village live pretty good. On the Albania side, you could throw a football from one to the other. Nothing grows. And it's full of snakes. True story. And they said, We don't have any snakes. They all live there. (laughs) Who told the snakes to go live there? (laughs) And all of that anti-God sentiment was fueled by Darwin. Man is the measure of all things. And it's a racist document. It's ridiculous. A couple of verses. We'll wrap it up. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools, who are the ones that become fools? The ones that profess themselves to be wise, right? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:18 18-20, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it's the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Same book, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Go back to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We hold the truth. We just hold it in unrighteousness. God must judge man. If he doesn't, he's not just, holy, and righteous. Man is guilty. Every man has God's witness all around him every day. He witnesses God's power and he witnesses God's person in a trinity, in nature. If he lives 70 plus years and never receives Jesus Christ as his personal savior, God will judge him as guilty. He has no excuse and he goes straight to hell. The general revelation of God is enough to condemn a man as guilty. But it's not enough to save his soul for eternity. And you say, what? (laughs) Yes, because God has set it up that he begins with step one, general revelation, here I am. If you will choose to receive that, if you will acknowledge that there must be some God, you don't even have to know who he is or what his name is, you just submit to the fact, wow, there's something bigger out there. Then it is God's job to make sure that you get to hear the specific revelation before you die so that you have a chance. We will get into this in more detail in chapter number two. That's where missions comes to play. We sense God's leading and calling and sending out of people to go to places that we don't fully understand but God knows because in those places he has already prepared hearts. They just need somebody to show up with the specific revelation and tell them about Jesus Christ. And if you get to be one of the ones who gets to go do that, can I just tell you it's the coolest job in the world because you get to see God do that stuff. Among people who have never had it, but they responded right to the general revelation and they wanted more. And God made sure they got more. So it's a partnership. But you know what? Here in this room today, y'all got all the information, man. You got it all. Jesus Christ came, died on the cross for your sins, was buried rose again the third day, and offers you the free gift of eternal life. The question is, because you're guilty. We're all guilty. Will you receive it? That's the question. So that's what I want us to consider right now. Let's pray together.